The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. Hello and welcome to The Views Room, the podcast from Reuters Breaking Views. I'm Liam Proud, a columnist in London. This week, a look ahead to 2020. What does the year have in store for the 130 billion gaming industry? A political crackdown, we reckon. But first, you may have noticed that the planet is slowly cooking. Well, so have some of the world's biggest companies. As part of our series of predictions for the coming year, we're projecting a surge in green mergers and acquisitions as the corporate world tries to get a handle on the risks of global warming. I sat down with my colleagues and fellow columnists Chris Thompson and Dasha Afanasieva to find out why. So, Chris, you've done a piece in this book um, that we're publicising, the 2020 Predictions book, which is making quite a bold call that there's going to be more of a specific type of deal-making in 2020 we've seen historically. Um, What do you mean and and why do you think that? Right, well, we predict a big uptick in green M&A, driven by the car sector in particular. And that's really really for a couple of reasons, and you can extrapolate some of the trends out to, to, to other sectors, including consumer, which we'll discuss with Dasha. But I think the first arguably climate-driven M&A deal, big M&A deal that we've seen is the Fiat Chrysler merger with France's Peugeot. You've got two big car makers coming together for a couple of reasons, one of which is that you've got the in the EU from next year, from 2020, car makers will start to be fined depending on the carbon emissions of their vehicle fleets in Europe, average emissions. It's anything over 95 grams emitted per kilometer you get fined on. So massive incentive not to be... Massive incentive to be cleaner. So that means phasing out your dirty cars, but also and increasing the sales of your electric vehicles. So basically Fiat Chrysler, according to some estimates, was facing round about up to $2 billion in EU fines over the next few years because... Uh, it has a dirty fleet. It's about 10% of its market cap or something like that. Pretty, exactly. Pretty like it's pretty chunky, right? And and at the same time, Peugeot has a much cleaner fleet. You combine the two together, you cut down on the potential fines that you face. So that's one reason that the deal was consummated. The other reason is quite simply, you've got this massive shift towards electric. And instead of having two separate budgets and different platforms and so forth, it makes much more sense to combine the two companies together share your investments, share your platforms, and then you've got all the added values on the, on the sales side of, of, of being able to scale up. And, and that's not just, of course, you've got, you've got Peugeot, Fiat, Chrysler, which has been announced, but you've had BMW and Daimler, the two German giants. They're doing a lot of cooperation, right? They're doing a lot of cooperation, especially in electric. Mm-hmm. Even if they don't make it a fully blown merger, you're seeing a lot of these deals, uh, Volkswagen and Ford, I believe, where, where you know, they, they recognize that as yeah. more electric cars become more popular and so forth. You need more because cooperation. The, you need more cooperation. You need to share costs. Yeah. You need to get benefits of the economies of scale so you can squeeze your suppliers, basically. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I buy that. The car sector needs to green. M&A is one way to do that. I mean, are there, are there any other areas that we need to be thinking about? I mean, is this a broader trend, do you think, Dasha? You cover consumer groups and kind of retail I mean, ESG, environmental, social governance, you know, there's a lot of talk about this stuff, but is, is there really an, an M&A angle yet for the consumer groups in, in kind of green deal making? I mean, there's no doubt that consumer uh, giants are really obsessed with the, you know, the green economy, about improving uh, their green credentials, about sort of meat, meat-free meat, that sort of thing, because they think that 
the people growing up now are going to be making their consumer decisions and their buying decisions Imagine. largely on the basis of a company's and a product's ESG credentials. Mm -hmm. So they've spoken a lot about that. Uh, but I don't really anticipate big a big deal flow off the back of that for several reasons. Um, one of which is because there aren't really huge companies that you can really take over. If you're someone like Nestle with a 160 or something billion dollar market cap, mm -hmm. it's quite hard to find a deal that's worth your while. Yes, and what yeah. Nestle and Unilever are doing is actually looking uh, to develop products off the back of their existing ventures that meet these sort of uh, green criteria. And they're doing that in-house and we'll, we'll see in time um, the, the, the degree to which that's successful. Um, if we also look in the past, uh, deals, larger deals that have happened with that rationale, the one that comes to mind immediately is White Wave, when Danon bought the make of, um, you know, like soy, alpha, soy milk, that sort yeah. of thing. And that's been um, good in terms of driving, driving sales, but it, was, it took a really long time to integrate. Yeah. So, you know, there are, there are pitfalls of this. Um, and lastly, the, you know, the other reason is that players like, um, you know, Nestle and Unilever are kind of uh, also partially constrained with uh, the strategy that they've set out and what else, you know, the other things they have going on. So, for example, in the case of Unilever, it's bought up loads of uh, loads of these expensive you know, beauty brands and it's actually now had to say probably need to do some selling. So it's not really... It's not going to be, you know, taking Beyond Meat private anytime yeah, soon. Yeah. So it's, it's hard to find those deals that move the needle. They've got a lot of other stuff going on, um, and it's actually quite difficult to integrate these kind of, you know, like environmentally woke brands into a big kind of corporate wheelhouse sometimes. Yeah, I also question um, question the idea that the long-term play that uh, consumers, obviously they're going to be driven, you know, we know that people are more often vegetarian, etc., than they used to be. Um, but if you look at some of the retailers, uh, in particular Primark, it sort of contradicts with, you know, Unilever's message that all these youngsters are going to grow up and they're going to refuse, they're going to pay pay up and yeah. pay more in order to have something green. Because these teenagers are... Exactly, yeah. whilst, you know, complaining on Twitter that they can't sleep because of climate change. Yeah. I, I wouldn't be surprised at all, given the the... The clever, the clever minds that go into these deals and the creative ways that they can imagine to kind of rebrand like existing deal flow as green. We will be having a lot more deals. They may not be strictly green. I mean, that's part of the part of the problem is obviously with the the breadth and thus the vagueness of the definition about what it really means. But I think we're going to get a lot of deals which are going to be rebranded partially or wholly as green. Or the M&A greenwashing. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. We'll get a lot of that. And to some extent, I mean, that's, it's legitimate. I think if it's, if it's, you know, these angles do matter. I mean, you've seen Nomura in the United States. They paid $100 million, uh, yeah, earlier this month for... Yeah, uh, green Tech. Green it's Tech. It's shop that's um, run by the old UBS investment banking boss. It does right, green right. energy deals. Right, and the renewable energy is probably the most obvious one, with, yeah. which, which we'll just see an uptick in kind of green M&A. But I think we'll also see it in consumer, industry... Um, logistics. Um. Right. I mean, that kind of reminds me of a big consumer deal that happened this year, which was Nestle selling Skin Health, mm. its skin health business, which is, you know, some derma fillers and injections for your face. <laughs> and the rationale. Another one that private equity. Right. And it was funny because Nestle was saying, we are, we have a sort of, a, you know, wellness wellness yeah. strategy 
uh, and nutrition and wellness, etc. And you know, we're going to sell this because it's not in keeping with the strategy. And then there's Swedish EQT on the other hand saying, this is this is great. We're buying this because it's wellness because yeah. people who look better feel better. Yeah. Uh, and that's that sort of speaks to this. <laughs> trying to rebrand it as green. Right. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Trying to rebrand like it as a Gwyneth Paltrow-ish kind of. Yeah. J-Z this is vaguely spy. spiritual slash green. Yeah. Forgetting the fact that you know it's chemicals <laughs> injected in your face. Yeah. Um, yeah. And pressuring what, what people to green? do that with pretty photos. Just. I mean. I mean Perhaps that would be a thing on, on my beat as well. I mean, the, so I cover thinking about the banking M&A kind of agenda next year. I mean, it's the, the perennial problem in European banking is that, you know, it's structurally not able to meet its cost of capital at the moment. Um, a lot of them, especially the likes of Deutsche Bank and Commerzbank. So it doesn't, you don't necessarily have a kind of immediate green angle there, but I do imagine, Chris, that you could imagine any kind of M&A, they, the PR sure. advisors will find a way yeah. to kind of put so, a, you know, this allows us to exit coal quicker than we would otherwise. Some of, some of the banks have made more of an effort than others. I think Natixis in France, one of the biggest uh, French investment banks, they have come up with a list of kind of, you know, supposedly uh, criteria which you can judge, you know, either pass or fail. Yeah, and they've try. tried to apply kind of green risk weights. Yeah to loans to, in order to, to kind of clean up their balance sheet, as it were, over time. So a loan would be evaluated, not only its projected returns and so forth, but also the kind of, uh, whether it meets certain environmental criteria. Exactly. And, 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 and the hope is that over time, that balance sheet will transition from being kind of much less, yeah, I, I guess, guess, supporting the non-carbon intensive yeah. economy. Which is, um, just back to the greenwashing point again, a kind of interesting, there's a Bank of England did a report a couple of days ago, we're recording this in late December, and um, they found that the non-green, i.e. kind of carbon-heavy assets on bank balance sheets in the UK were equivalent to about 70% of carbon um, of common equity tier one, the core measure of capital. Oh, wow. yeah, right? yeah, Essentially sure. implying that there is actually a financial stability yeah. risk here. Yeah. If this stuff loses um, suddenly loses yeah. its value and you've got all these outstanding loans, um, then what happens to your equity position? I guess it's yeah. a bit scary. But anyway, let's, let's broaden out a little bit beyond the kind of green thing. I mean, you know, as you say, most deals that happen are still not predominantly about climate. I mean, what do we think about the broader M&A agenda? It's sort of, it's, it was down year on year a little bit in 2019, but maybe not as much as you would expect given the kind of, you know, talk of political risks and a slowing economy and uncertainty and stuff like that. I mean, I don't know who wants to go first, but I mean, just how, how, how are you thinking about the 2020 M&A volumes? Are we thinking up or down, higher or lower? Oh, that's really tough. <laughs> uh, I think probably a bit higher yeah. in Europe because they fell 10% this year. Yeah, and so it's people an, an easy brand the Brexit. Right, and the yeah. whole Brexit, whether it actually changes anything at all, but you can kind of brand it to your clients as we know yeah. what's going to happen now, even though we actually don't do yeah. um, necessarily. And it is definitely what all the bankers yeah. say. The pipeline is strong. I mean, they say that yeah. every yeah. single day. I mean, I mean, the two, robust, the yeah, two excuses that were so regularly trotted out for like crappy deals this year was either Brexit in some form or another or yeah. the China-US trade war. Yeah. They both, I mean, you know, God help us all, but yeah. they both they both look like they've reached some kind of messy conclusion. Yeah. Um, and, you know, at the same time, you've got record asset prices in both bond and equity markets, yeah. at least in 
in in the US and to an extent, you know, European equities yeah. have rebounded strongly. You've obviously got record uh, uh, record low bond yields. Debt is super cheap. There's going to be more deals coming. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and just the and fewer IPA excuses market. for not doing them. right, right. Yeah. And and what about the IPA market? I'm actually something of a new issues specialist. I mean, it has basically disappeared in in Europe. In yeah, it's not looking right? good. It's not looking good. I think I think uh, big investment banks are kind of just hoping that Asia uh, makes up for it. But if you think about the deals we're actually expecting, I mean, it's the likes of JAB's coffee business, which is a, a consumer business with. A you know not very right. well performing retail bit. It's it's not, not mouth watering prospect. I I, w- I wouldn't say so no. Um, and the, we've had years of sort of on and off cancellations, poor performing uh, companies uh, in Europe. Um, it's it doesn't look good from where I'm sitting. Brilliant. Yeah, I think we've already mentioned cars. There's going to be, yeah. if not necessarily because there are so few candidates, there's going to be M&M on car parts suppliers. Also, they're all going to get squeezed because the car companies are partnering up. It makes sense for the suppliers yeah. to be the same. Fantastic. Dasha, Chris, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Thank you. And now on to the second and final section. 2020 will be a seismic year for the 130 billion global video games industry. There'll be some new consoles from Sony and Microsoft, while big tech groups like Google Parent Alphabet will roll out their own game streaming services. But my colleague Oliver Taslich spies a problem for the industry, which is increasingly reliant on a dubious revenue model that's starting to look a lot like gambling. So I'm here with Oliver Taslich, and we're going to talk very briefly about gaming in 2020. So, Oli, we're talking about video gaming in particular, right? Why is this a hot topic next year? Why do you, why are you expecting it to be in the news? So 2020 is going to be a big year for gaming, however you look at it. And the main reason is that uh, Microsoft and Sony are releasing um, a new generation of consoles. So we've and, got the, and they're the big ones, right? Like they control a big chunk of the market. Yeah, yeah, they're Nintendo. So, I mean, you've got the Xbox One Series X and the PlayStation 5 that are coming out um, around the holiday season in late 2020. Right. Um, and you also just had in November um, 2019, we also had Google releasing Stadia, right. which is their new... Um, it's like called uh, cloud gaming. Yeah, 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 like a completely new platform. And there's also rumors that Amazon could be utilizing the you know huge potential of Amazon Web Services using their servers, and right. they could get into this too. So there's a lot of movements going on next year, basically towards the end of this year and next. Definitely. And um, and what is the sort of yeah, I don't know. What's the view on it? I mean, who's who's well placed to make money from this? Because I mean, I think you've, you've found some numbers saying it's about a $130 billion market, right? Yeah, so it's, it's a huge industry, definitely. And as, as we argue in the column, I think the developers, the developers are very well placed. Um, right, so the developers, these are the people who actually make the games rather than the people who make the consoles mm. or the people who are doing these streaming things. It's yeah. the, almost like the, the equivalent of the movie studio. Yeah, 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 exactly. So who are they? Um, so the big ones, you've got Activision Blizzards. Uh, they make games like uh, Call of Duty, which you may have heard of. That's um, the shoot 'em up World yeah, War Two kind yeah, of. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Take Two Interactive. Um, they make games like Grand Theft Auto. Yeah. Uh, Red Dead Redemption. These kind of open world games. You've also got Ubisoft. Um, That's the got, French company Ubisoft. Yeah, they make yeah. Um, Assassin's Creed and and um, Epic yeah. Games, for example. Uh, they make Fortnite, right. which is. Um, 
Championship. Any, anyone with a young teenage child will have walked past the screen and seen the yeah. Fortnite being played recently. And, and you think they're quite well placed, these, these studios, relative to the console makers and the big tech groups? Yeah, so as my colleague uh, Rob Siren argues, um, they have this sort of so Fortnite for example is it's almost a place to hang out with your friends after right. after school or after work or something and then and then the gaming comes second so that's that's a huge advantage and the platform won't yeah. matter is this is epic games the advantage this is Fortnite's advantage so they own the intellectual property if you like they have the games that people want to be at yeah yeah and you know like IP is a, is a huge thing especially for a take two interactive uh, people see Grand Theft Auto in particular as extremely valuable intellectual property um, Activision and Call of Duty Rainbow Six, Ubisoft, these are extremely strong brands. Yeah. And we think no matter how things change next year uh, regarding you know, Google, Amazon, Microsoft, mm. the, the developers, yeah, the, the ones who make the games, they, they, have a, uh, they have a really strong hand. In the same way that Disney has a strong hand vis-a-vis -vis the movie theatre chain operators or the, you know, the TV channels and stuff, if you have the, the characters and brands that people love, you should be able to make money somehow because that's scarce. Um, and I mean, how are the developers making money out of these games? I mean, you've you've noticed from the financials that it's is there's some bits that are growing quicker than others, right? Yeah, definitely. So since about I don't know the early to mid 2010s, we've seen a new way of making money in video games. So originally, video games were a very um, boom or bust proposition you right. would spend a few months or even years developing a game and then it, it would come out and you'd see whether it would catch on or not you got a few months and right. you know maybe it will blow up and become amazingly popular maybe maybe it won't um but now there's um they're starting to make more money from so-called uh, digital sales or digital revenue they're right. sometimes called different things um and these are basically transactions that you make in the game so once you purchase the box from GameStop or somewhere yeah. um, you can make more transactions uh, buying new characters buying you know weapons or things like that right new players if it's a soccer game like FIFA yeah right and and there's certain characteristics of this revenue that um, I think seem to be quite attractive right it doesn't basically costs you know Ubisoft for example very little as far as I can tell to send another gun to mm. to a random player so the margin yeah. on that is very high definitely and it's yeah. growing quite quickly as well yeah the margin on yeah the margin on selling something digitally to a consumer is, yeah. is so much lower than you know uh, printing a disc putting it in a box shipping it you know things and like it's that. predictable yeah. because you've, you've you know you know that a certain amount of people will upgrade to this new mm. weapon or character and, yes. and i mean but what, you also think there's some risks around this because of a particular type of um, financial model that they're pursuing with these digital in-game. I mean, this, the, the, the catchphrase is loot boxes, right? Could mm. you explain what a loot box is? Yeah, so it's definitely, it definitely sounds a bit like gaming jargon, definitely. Um, <laughs> so a loot box is uh, it's basically a, uh, it's, it's a collection of randomised items right. uh, that the gamer can pay for. So you can pay for it using some sort of acquired in-game currency. Okay. Um, uh, or, or real money. Or, or you yeah. use real money. So to controversially, get yes, yeah. you, can, you can buy it with real money. So, um, so in, the, in this instance, you would be paying real money for the, the chance, but not the guarantee, to win some extremely rare and desirable digital uh, thing. Objects or characters. Yeah, yeah or... like a, a particularly desirable soccer player or an amazing weapon or things like that. Yeah. So it sounds like gambling to me. Is there anyone else who's, who's noticed that and might be twigging onto it? Exactly. So this is the sort of thing you read about in the media or, for example, academics might be doing work right. on. There's this, there's this argument 
that this is essentially gambling because you're you're paying money for the chance to win something you might want. And basically, governments around the world are seeing it in very different ways. So, the UK government, for example, um, or the UK Gambling Commission, so right. that they've argued that it's not gambling because these things that you acquire, they don't have uh, what's called money's worth. I see. Um, they're not valuable outside of the game. Yeah, they're desirable to you in game. You you mm. you want it, but they don't have you know pound sterling value and things like that. But other governments see it very differently. So, for example, Belgium. Um, there was quite a furore last year when they took the decision to ban loot boxes altogether. Um, and uh, for example, in China, you've got restrictions on how much under 18s can spend um, in game on, on, on digital sales. Yeah. I see. So quite a quite a. It seems like that would be quite a big risk in the long term for some of these gaming companies. I mean, if if there was a kind of Belgian style clampdown outside of Belgium. Is there any way of knowing how much it would affect their revenues? Do you do you have a figure on how big a percentage uh, loot box style revenue is of some of the developers? Yeah, so for example, Electronic Arts, they're a big developer. We didn't mention um, earlier, they, they produce uh, the FIFA um, soccer games. Yeah. Um, and in their latest financial year, they, uh, they, they said that 28% of uh, their total net revenue came from uh, this game mode called Ultimate Team. And in Ultimate Team, you can purchase these randomized uh, boxes, what they're called packs, right. um, and then you can uh, put together your your sports team. But yes, yeah, so a, a substantial amount of their revenue comes from uh, gamers buying these these uh, randomized, these, these, these randomized yeah. packs. Um, so for in the latest financial year, it was um, 28% of total yeah. revenue came from them. That's big money. So to sum it up, developers are well-placed. Um, Big tech's putting a lot of money into it, but there are some real regulatory risks on the horizon. That's about right? Yeah. Great. Oli, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Thanks to all our guests this week, and thanks especially to the fantastic Mr. Freddie Joyner for producing this podcast. Please subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts for The Views Room, Exchange, and other Reuters podcasts. And check us out every day at breakingviews.com, reuters.com, and on Twitter, at breakingviews.